Hi, this is Dr. Mark Sell for the podcast Therapy for the Heart, and this is episode 89, and I'm going to talk about the emotion of anger. So in early development, when a child is, you know, maybe three, two, three, four, five months old, up to three, they are very startled by scares of noises. For instance, some some parents will be having an argument and they don't realize that this is terrifying for the child to hear, so they might fight in, in front of the child. And, and that display of anger really needs to be controlled because no one knows how terrifying it is to a child to hear to hear the parents. They don't know what they're angry about, and sometimes they, sometimes they think that the fight is about them, something that they did or didn't do, uh, which is not the reality at all, but that's the impression that they have, that what did I do to make the parents, my parents angry? So, so it's very frightening, and just in general, infants are very startled about, startled about loud noises, like if there's a siren, Going outside, a fire engine, you know, it can be very, very scary. Any loud noise. So that's just something to continue to keep in mind over the podcast of the Therapy for the Heart is the parent's response to what the child is doing is most important. It's not to blame the parents because parents have one of the toughest jobs in the world to try to handle everything when they have children. They have to handle their relationship with each other and they have to go to work and make a living, and uh, it's difficult to raise a child. So so this is not a criticism of parents if they don't do these things, but it's trying to help each one of us try to get to the idea of what's our best interaction with our children when, they, when they're growing up. Sometimes a mother has a, a, mother has a, a very, very deep-seated problem of separation problems from from their child. And a good example of this is the case of Jane, which you can, which you can find on my website. She, her mother would, I'm sorry if I got a little hoarse today, coming down with something or other, but her mother, when she would do, wouldn't do her homework right, her mother would scream at her and pull her hair. She had such a, such an angry reaction to her daughter when she didn't do things right. So Jane then became, her, her growth was really stunted because of that. So as I said, you can find it on my website, uh, Stalemates in Therapy and the Notion of Gratification. That's the, that's the case about Jane. But she was terrified of her mother because she was dependent upon her. And at the same time, she couldn't help being uh, not so competent in terms of her homework. That's just the way she was. But her mother's reaction very was very debilitating to her feeling of uh, self-esteem and self-worth. So she developed um, a real problem in terms of dealing with herself and her relationships with people. For instance, when she was a teenager, she would bully other girls and she would make fun of their breasts, which is interesting. I mean, interesting because she was made so much fun of by her mother because she wasn't, she didn't meet, meet her mother's expectations. But Jane would tease other girls about the size of their breasts, I guess. I mean, Jane was amply endowed, so uh, she could do that, but it wasn't in her interest because she really drove people o- away by doing that. But that's her anger, bounced it off for how her mother treated her. 
Anger is a natural occurrence between people. You know, when we get when we get mad, it's. Uh, once I once I was walking down the sidewalk and I, I observed a mother and a child, and the child said to her mother, says, "I hate you," and the mother said back, "I hate you too." Now you might think that's not a good thing for a mother to say, but I what I observed it was very it was there was no big deal. The mother the child said, "I hate you," and the mother said, "I hate you too," and that was it. There was no insidious interaction that I could see following that. So that was just an exchange between mother, and it wasn't a terrible thing for the mother to say that to the child, because it was just, but there wasn't an insidious punishing anger behind that, behind that explanation. So if there's an extreme reaction of anger on the part of either mother or uh, father, the child becomes obedient out of fear, and we don't want to have our children become obedient because they're afraid of their parent. We want them to become obedient because they understand uh, that's a way to behave in life, to be obedient in your, with your parent and not act out, not scream. But if you're, they're obedient, obedient out of fear, that's not a good, good thing for the child. And they just grow up with that characterological trait of cowering and maybe being obedient to other people when they, when they don't really do it because they, they make sense out of it. They, they make sense of it because they're afraid of the parent's reaction. And then they become afraid of other people who are standing stand-ins for their parents. Sometimes one parent is set up, set up by the other. So for instance, um, the mother or father might say, uh, Wait till your mother or father, wait till your mother comes home, or wait till your father comes home. So what they're doing is really setting up one parent to, to be uh, the, the, the bad person rather than take responsibility for their own, for their responsibility to handle the child with their, with, 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 between the interaction of them rather than to say, well, wait till your mother or father comes home. And that's setting up the per parent as the bad person. It's not, it's, it's abdicating responsibility for your own feelings. Uh, often often the, the, we'll say, wait till your father comes home and he's usually the one that's assigned the punishing role. So uh, yeah, it's not a good idea. So when parents are fighting and the child hears it, what are they going to do? How are they going to explain that to themselves? Now, they don't know what's going on. They're not old enough to understand the conflicts that mother and father are having between each other. There's no way to understand it. So what they usually do is self-blame. In other words, they'll feel that it must be me. Something, something I've done or didn't do, doesn't do well enough, I didn't perform well enough, that's... That's the reason why the parents are, are fighting. So they, they'll start to attack themselves. And that turns into feelings of uh, uh, worthlessness, of uh, feeling inadequate, they're not, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart. So when, when they're attacked, the, uh, the intellect, it's the way that anger is, it turns, it turns against the self. So it could lead to depression too, because in depression we have a feeling of, I'm worthless, I'm not good enough. And that's how the ego is attacked. Um, it's called an interject. And one, one of the things that we're trying to do in therapy with working with people who are self-attacking and self-blaming 
is this is a big handle, uh, psychoanalytic handle. So you, if I say it, you're not going to understand it, but I'll explain it. But the you want to help the person move those interjects in the ego, I'm worthless, to the object world, meaning to, to the object world, to somebody else. So in therapy, the object world, world is, is the therapist. That's, their, that's what the, who the object world becomes, because, because if you're in therapy and you have, if you're in there for a while, everything, so many things surround, so many things involve the, your re relationship with the therapist, and that therapist is there to help you talk about their, your, their conflicts so that, so that they can re replay them, really, with, with the therapist and, and resolve them. So the patient may have a feeling, for instance, that the, uh, that the therapist is, is, uh, doesn't like them or that doesn't think, think well of them. And these feelings are not coming from, from the therapist generally, but they're coming from the projection of, onto the therapist of their experiences with, with, the, with, the, with the parents. So once a relationship is, is built with a therapist, and that takes some time, it just doesn't happen immediately. It takes a lot of listening to, to, to the patients, to, for the patients to feel understood, to know that they're not going to be thrown out of the office uh, about something that they would say or criticize. So it takes a while to build that understanding and empathy that the therapist is going to have for the patient. And then also the patient is then, then going to internalize so that they can feel that somebody Somebody can be respectful of them. They're not going to throw them out of the office. And that builds up their self-worth over time. So when I said you're going to move the interjects, I'm worthless, to the object world, what that means is that in therapy, what's going to help the patient feel strong and solid inside themselves and develop self-confidence is that they can attack the therapist and not be retaliated against. So the therapist becomes the object world. And that is a very good thing because the therapist hopefully is not going to be reacting to them like the parent did when they got angry. So the therapist will elicit anger from the, from the patient over time, not in the beginning. First, it has to be a relationship of trust. <clears throat> and that means a lot of listening and uh, attention to the patient. and. Not, not, not judging them like they were judged in the past, but listening and then being understood. And it's a wonderful thing for some people because often they've never really been understood by anybody. And that's, an, that's, a, that's a strong ex exaggeration. It's probably not absolutely true, but often it is true. It's the first time they have felt listened to in their life sometimes by the therapist. So it's a very important relationship. Uh, but it's one where it's one where the uh, where the the interjects I I am worthless, I'm no good, I'm not smart. They will be directed at the therapist. So to make a long story short, they might say after therapy for a while, you know, I don't like the way you're work, working with me. You know, I don't like what you just said. And then they'll bring out the projection. I feel you're critical of me. And uh, hopefully the therapist is not critical of them. Sometimes they are, but hopefully they're not. So they'll be able to tease out those projections and understand and analyze them and help the patient see that their experiences of the therapist, their experience of the therapist is like their mother or father. 
who were very cr critical of them. But it's just the, the, it's the very process of being angry at the therapist that cures them. But the therapist has to be able to withstand that anger and be able to elicit it. And some therapists, therapists can't. I know therapists who were very well trained and when they were talking to me about the history of their work with patients, often they would talk about the patients terminating and they didn't know why. And one of the reasons was is because they didn't really understand how that, they didn't explore how the, how the patient was, how the patient felt about them in the work. They would miss that opportunity. So, so therefore, the, the patient would just leave because they acted out their anger instead of being able to express it to the therapist. So for, for, for the, the therapists to do their job to the best of their ability, they would need to ask the patient right from the beginning, how is our work, how is it to be working with me? How is it? How has it been so far? And to build that in, so it, by just by asking that question, they give the impression to the patient that you're interested in hearing their authentic response. That doesn't mean that they're going to be authentic with you. It's very hard for a patient to be able to say to a person, especially if they're not working with them with you for a very long time, to say a criticism or to elicit it or to be able to say it. It's just hard for them. And therefore, you don't, you don't want to force the issue. But gradually, you want to say, uh, how is our work? Going, how has it been going so far with me? How is our work going? Just that. And, and if they said fine, then you don't take it, depending upon the patient, I wouldn't take fine as the final answer. I might say something like, well, you know, many of the, many of the people that I work with often have something to say about the way I work, like, you know, the way I talk, the way I don't talk, if I talk too fast, too, too, too slow. Uh, maybe something in the, about in the office they might not like, so I'll help them to express it that way. One time a patient told me when I was exploring it with him, he was always saying everything I was doing fine. And then he said, one time he said, well, I don't like the ceiling in, the, in this office. As a matter of fact, now that you mention it, it's a tin ceiling. Now, I did have a tin ceiling in the office. That's what they made those times, a tin ceiling. So he, he told me he didn't like that. So I said, well, what else? So, so he got around to this, some of the furniture in the office and he said, well, those chairs could be in the basement. <laughs> so so that was very authentic, you know. And he wasn't the person to complain because he's got the message from his mother, he, you don't get angry. She was, could, ang could get angry with him, but she, he dare not be angry with her. So I had to work with him for a long time before he would able to, be able to say, well, that, you know, that, that tin ceiling, see, he was an architect, so that tin ceiling he shouldn't have in here. So, and then he went to the furniture, and then he, when he came around to my paintings, then he kind of backed away, and I didn't want to push it, but, you know, he didn't, that was too close to home. But anyway, that's what the therapist needs to do, is to, to make, to ask how the treatment is going. Some patients won't be able to relate to that question, because it's too early in the treatment, and you're imposing yourself, as a matter of fact, too early. In other words, some, some the patient wants to feel like there's this, their room that they're in, they're, they're with this person who is like an extension of themselves. So you don't want to introduce yourself as a, too much as a person because they need to keep this feeling that you and they are one, like one person, like the good enough mother. So, so 
you don't want to introduce yourself into this scenario until they get uh, they can start to maybe ask you about yourself and react to you as a person but mostly you're a transference object like that in the beginning so you want to be very gently uh, approached uh, uh, you know this this question of how they're doing with how the therapist is going but I don't think you have to wait too long as long as you ask it, you know, give the, giving, giving the, the patient the room to say, to not respond or not to say anything about that, let, to let it go that if they don't have any reaction to when you say, how, how is the therapy going? But you want to be genuinely interested in their, in their reaction to, to, to that question. And if you can't really hear it, then it's going to be a problem because many therapists don't want to hear the patient criticizing them. Alice Miller did a paper about the narcissistic patient and the narcissistic analyst actually and her her idea was that ther therapists are in in the role of, of, of the being of the therapist because they're in the role where they have the undivided attention of the person. That's a narcissistic gratification. The undivided attention, but they don't want to hear any angry remarks from the patient and she posited that was that was often a, a difficult dynamic between patient and therapist because those therapists who don't want to hear the anger um, they're going to be having a problem working with that patient but she said this is very typical of of the therapists who are in the field because they have their dynamic is they'd like to be paid attention to but they don't want want to hear anything critical because of the way they were brought up so in summary, we we're talking about the the emotion of anger, and we're ending up with how that is played out within the patient therapist relationship, and how it's a wonderful opportunity for that person to be able to resolve this problem they have of, of self uh, attacking and worthless feelings and attacking themselves so how they can work that out with a the therapist but the therapist has to be ready to hear it and um, this is a the technical aspect of moving the interject I'm worthless from the ego to the object world which is the therapist so so that if the patient can end up expressing all the loving and hateful feelings in the presence of the analysts, also toward the analyst, and they, the analyst can help them resolve this so that they don't have to attack themselves anymore. And that, and that is a great resolution if the, if, the, if the patient can stay in therapy long enough to be able to, uh, um, be able to express it. And if also the therapist can help the patient to fully express all their feelings of love and hate in terms of their former relationships and also with the therapist. To, so this is Dr. Mark Sell uh, for the podcast Therapy for the Heart. If you have any questions, you can shoot me an email at marksell at gmail.com and also download the episodes. So thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week.